this um, past Thursday, Steve and Hal and I went and looked at, with a, we went with a realtor and looked at an old church that's for sale uh, near Wofford. Um, it's, it's a cool old church, beautiful sanctuary, incredible gym, lots of room, more room than the Marriott probably, oh my God. easily. Uh, there's five stories in this building. The top two, I don't think anybody's been in since the Great Depression. Uh, we, we found a wheelchair in one of those that I really think was FDR's. It had the wicker back and, and all that stuff going on. It's probably worth what they're asking for the building. And, and, and on one end, it seemed like, man, this would be really cool. It's right next to, to Wofford. It's a great location. It's a cool-looking old church. But on the other hand, you look at it and you go, well, there's 950,000 reasons we shouldn't worry about this church, which would be the asking price for it. It's, it's very old. It would um, take about that much money to fix up and a full-time crew to keep it, to, uh, to keep it running and operable. So for a church plan of, say, 20 people, probably not a very sound investment. <laughs> uh, probably not the best thing we could do. You know, if I said to you all this week, oh, man, this is a great idea. I think you should all go home and take out a second mortgage on your home and donate that money, and we're going to go buy this you, you would rightfully run me out of town. Uh, that would be a very poor uh, investment, a very risky strategy. Every day, many of us are making an even worse investment. Uh, we're, we're, we're betting on something that's even more risky. Uh, the risk we're taking, the bet that we're making, is that at the end of our days, when, when we're dead and in the grave, that either we're just going to rot like our pet goldfish, or uh, we're betting that God will, for some reason, welcome us into His kingdom, welcome us into heaven. Uh, we might not really sh- be really sure which religion is the right one. It's all kind of confusing to us. We don't really like the formality of religion. We think that Christians are all uh, a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, we know a lot of great people who aren't religious. Uh, we don't really feel a need for God in our lives. We're doing all right without God. And if we're not doing so great, then then we can take care of things on our own. And so we sort of roll the dice and shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know, maybe it'll turn out alright in the end. Maybe God will welcome me in to His kingdom. Um, we've, We've got the sort of attitude, it's kind of like we're, as one of our great poets said, let me quote this song and see who can get this first. I'm guessing how, but I'm not sure. My kids can't participate because I've been singing this all weekend. She says we've got to hold on to what we've got because it doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. We've got each other, and that's a lot for love, so we'll give it a shot. Yeah, yeah, what's the song? Living on a prayer. Okay. We're living on a prayer, and that's basically what what some some of us are doing uh, with regard to our eternal destiny. We don't really know what's going to happen. We're just hoping it's going to turn out alright in the end. We're basically living uh, on a prayer. And, and honestly though, not spending a whole lot of time thinking about it. You know, we got today. Let's live for today and maybe that's going to work out alright. The section of Romans 3 that we're going to look at tonight is going to show us how can we, how we can be sure that we're going to make it that God is going to welcome us into His arms and into eternity. So I want to pick up Romans, beginning in verse 19. And I'm actually going to read 
uh, from the NIV tonight. Romans 3, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you've gathered us here tonight and that you have given us your word. I pray now that you would open it to us and make it clear to us what this doctrine of justification by faith is. Help us to understand it and see why it is vital for us to know you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I got, I got two big points, that's all. I'm going to break them down a little bit as we go, but two big points. Our problem, God's solution. Our problem, God's solution. Uh, first of all, our problem. The book of Romans, again, remember, is this letter, basically, that was written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a group of recent converts to Christianity living in Rome uh, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. Some of these folks were Jews who had converted to Christianity. Others were Gentiles and pagans, very irreligious folks who had converted to Christianity as well. And the case that Paul makes over the first three chapters of Romans that we've been hammering for the last three weeks at least is that every single one of us have a serious problem in terms of our standing and our relationship with God. Uh, In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that everyone everywhere knows that God exists and has no excuse for not worshiping Him. But instead of worshiping God, we elevate things in the creation to the place of the Creator and we worship and serve these things in the creation instead of serving God the Creator. It can be anything from money to power to the Atlanta Braves. Uh, we're, We're all worshiping something. We're all made to worship something. And when we don't worship God we worship something else. And the fact that we have rejected the king of the universe and have, and have worshipped idols instead, because of that we are under God's wrath. Uh, he is rightfully, righteously angry with us for not worshipping Him. Uh, chapter 2, Paul shifts gears a little bit and he addresses 
the religious people and says basically to them, don't think you're getting off the hook because you're moral and religious. You're in just as much trouble as the people you call pagans are uh, because God's after your heart and the fact of the matter is your hearts are very far from God and your religion will not give you any shelter from the wrath of God either. And then chapter 3, the first part, he kind of brings all that together and says, as a matter of fact, no one is good. Uh, No, not one. Uh, At the end of the day, the Bible says that you and I are broken people, that we are rebels, that we want to find God as much as a robber wants to find a policeman. We, We don't want Him in our lives. In verse 19 that we started reading with tonight, we find that God holds us accountable uh, for our behavior, for the fact that we haven't worshipped Him. And that there, at the end of the day, there's nothing that we can say in our defense when we stand before Him and He calls us to give an account for how we lived. We can't say, uh, I was confused about religion. We, we can't say, I just wasn't that interested in religion in my life. I had my family, I had my business, I had other concerns, and, and I was a pretty good person in all of this. I, I didn't get in trouble with the law. I was faithful to my spouse. I, I raised my children well. I, I just didn't have that much time for religion, and I figured it was all going to work out in the end. We can't say, I attended church regularly. None of these, we have no excuse. We have nothing to say. Uh, verse 19 and 20 say every mouth will be stopped we start to give our excuse and and God just says there's nothing that you can say Uh, by what you have done verse 20 by the works of the law by the things that you do no one will be declared righteous in God's sight and the reason that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by doing the works of the law is that at the end of the day no one's actually done them that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God now that's that's the depressing news that we've been we've been hammering for the last three weeks. That's our huge problem. And now we get to the good news, though. After after all the bad news, the good news is that God has a solution to our problem, and His solution actually involves Him giving us a gift. Uh, God doesn't give us something else to do. He doesn't give us a chore to finish so that we can then go outside and play. He gives us a gift that we simply receive. What's the gift? What's the solution to our problem? The gift that God gives us is in verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law. A righteousness from God apart from the law. Now, let's go through this again. Um, to be righteous in a, before a court means to be in right standing with that court. It means that that court has no claim against you because you haven't broken the law, you've actually obeyed the law, so you're in right standing with them. Think of standing before a judge. The judge has a couple of options. He can condemn you. He can say, you've broken the law and therefore you're guilty, you're condemned. Or he can declare you righteous. He can say, look, you've actually kept the law I declare you to be in right standing with this court. All right, let's, let's use an example here. Let's say you're accused of stealing a chili cheese of plenty from the beacon. I know you're all tempted to do this on a daily basis. And and you're you're taking 
you're taken to the court, and the judge says, "What are you crazy? You're taken. You're taken before the court. Uh, the judge can say, "Look, you stole the chili cheese of plenty. I condemn you." Or he can say, "Look, you, you didn't steal the chili cheese of plenty. You are you are righteous before this court. You're justified." Right? And, and this idea of to be justified to justify simply means to declare righteous. It's just another form of the of the same word. Uh, justifies to declare righteous. Now, uh, stealing a burger may not be that big a deal, but breaking God's law is a very big deal, as we've been hammering home. And, and Paul does it again here in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned, we've all broken God's law, and the penalty for that, the rightful penalty for that, is death, our death. So according to what we've read so far in Romans, what God should say when we go and stand before Him as the judge is simply, you've broken my law, you're guilty, you stand condemned. Instead, Paul is saying here that God is is offering to do something else. He's offering you a gift of right standing in His court. He's offering to declare you righteous. Now, he shouldn't declare you guilty, but he's offering instead to declare you righteous. That's the gift. Right standing with God. Righteousness. Now, that sounds pretty good. How can God possibly give us this kind of gift? How can God give us this gift? If God is really just, how can he look at people who have broken his law and say to them, I declare you righteous? Now, the truth of the matter is, you've broken the law, but I declare you righteous. To put it another way, how can God look at people who are lawbreakers and say, you've kept my law. You've kept it. That's all there is to it. At the end of the day, you've kept my law. Where would the justice be in that, if God actually did that? Look at verse 24. It tells us that those who trust in Christ are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus." God is able to give you the gift of right standing in His court because Jesus has satisfied the demands of the court. God is able to give you the gift of right standing in His court because Jesus has satisfied the demands of the court. Jesus has satisfied the demands of God's justice. He's done what the law requires. Uh, There's a show on ABC, or there was, I'm not sure if it's still on or not, but it's... it's, um, it's the one where a team of contractors comes in and they build new houses for people who need homes. They don't have a home and they can't afford to pay for a new home. And they don't charge them anything. All right, here's people who have no ability to do what needs to be done. Someone comes in and builds the house for them and pays the people who build the house for them. They take care of it for them. What Paul is saying is when is that when it comes to the issue of our standing in God's courtroom, 
Jesus has built the house and Jesus has taken care of the bill. He's done both of those things. He's done what we couldn't do. Now what is it what is it that he's done exactly that we couldn't do? Well, basically he's met the demands of the law. Jesus has met the demands of the law. Uh, up to this point, remember, again, you probably get this by now, Paul has been taking great pains to say that no one is righteous, that no one of us has met the demands of the law. We've all sinned. But at the same time, if you remember back in the middle of chapter 2, he said that those who obey the law will be declared righteous. Now that sounds nice until you realize, well, there's nobody that's obeyed the law. Jesus did. Jesus obeyed the law in every way. He never stole. He never gossiped. Uh, he was never unrighteously angry with somebody. He never lied. He always loved his neighbors. He always had the right emotions even. His thought life was always perfect. He always thought the right thing and had the right motive and did the right thing. He did what the law required. He met the demands of the law. But then he also met the demand of the law that sin be punished. Not his sin, but the sins of his people. So that Paul can say, Jesus actually redeemed us. He paid the price. He died the death we deserve to die. He looked at us and said, you deserve to go to the electric chair for your crimes. I'm going to go in your place. I'm going to be executed for you. I'm going to stand in and receive God's wrath that you rightfully should be receiving. And in dying and in shedding His blood, Jesus turns aside the wrath of God from us. Uh, the NIV uses the term here, sacrifice of atonement. The ESV is, is better here and actually says propitiation. And what that means simply is to turn aside God's wrath. That in going to the cross... And undergoing the wrath of God there for us, He has turned God's way, God's wrath away from us by absorbing it Himself. <coughs> Here's the reality. You and I don't do what the law requires. And so all we have to look forward to really is death and judgment. But Jesus did what the law requires. He kept it perfectly, and then He met the demands of the law that sin be punished on the cross so that we might hear instead of, of getting that verdict of guilty we might instead receive a verdict of you are righteous because Jesus has taken our place now at this point a lot of people will say well look why the cross why did, why did Jesus have to die for God to forgive us why can't God just forgive us why can't God just forgive us the way we forgive other people? Uh, but think about it. You and I know there's always a cost in forgiving somebody. Think about somebody who's sinned against you and you forgave them. It cost you something to do that. You, you bore a cost, an emotional cost if nothing else, but it cost you something to not strike back. And to not try to hurt them the way that they hurt you. You, you absorbed that cost. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that everyone who forgives someone bears the other's sins. In other words, instead of striking back at them for what they've done, you absorb the cost yourself. 
can you see what's involved with the infinitely holy God doing that to us? What's involved in God forgiving our sins and bearing our sins? Do we really see the gravity of our sin and the majesty and the holiness of the God against whom we have sinned? Uh, sin is rebellion in the eyes of a God whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Sin is against a God who is thoroughly committed to justice. Uh, John Stott said this, he said, The real question is not why God finds it difficult to forgive, but how He finds it possible to do so at all. How is it that God finds it possible to forgive at all? The answer is the cross of Jesus, where God Himself in the flesh bore the penalty of our sin for us. Now, the next question becomes, okay, who's that effective for? Who does that count for? When when Jesus met the demands of the law, who was He representing? Or put it like this, did Jesus turn away God's wrath from every single person on the face of the earth there on the cross uh, did Jesus redeem everybody because of what Jesus did then does everybody now have right standing with God well verse 22 again this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe verse 25 talks about uh, being made right through faith in His blood. Uh, in other words, here's what Jesus has done. Jesus has met the demands of the law. He has lived that perfect life. He has died a sacrificial death, death on the cross. And you get credit for that if you trust in Him. If you believe. If you place your faith in Him. If you exercise uh, faith and receive that gift from God. If you trust in what Jesus has done instead of trusting in what you yourself have done. Jesus has in fact turned aside the wrath of God from every single person who trusts in Him to do so. And the question for you to ask yourself is have I done that? Have I put my faith in Jesus and trusted Him to bear the penalty that I should have borne to turn aside the wrath of God from me. Um, the truth of the matter is that if you do though that, do do that, if you do trust in Christ to forgive your sin, then you can know, no matter how messed up your past is, no matter how complicated your present is, no matter how muddled your future seems like it's going to be, you can know that you have right standing with God because you have the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account. It's Jesus' righteousness that God the Father sees when He looks at you and not your own sin. Uh, This is the gift that really changes everything at the end of the day. It's not a gift you can work for. It's not a gift that you can go to church long enough to get. Uh, God simply offers it to you freely and we receive it by faith. That brings us to another question as we're kind of going down this road. What then is faith? If I receive what Jesus has done by faith, what's faith? Well, for one, we know it's the opposite of work. Verse 28, 
we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So faith is the opposite of work. Uh, and it's not just faith in general. You, you hear a lot of people say, well, as long as you have faith in something, everything's going to be okay. But Paul says that this kind of faith has to be, in verse 22, in Jesus. And it's not just faith that Jesus was a cool dude. Verse 25 says that it's through faith in His blood that you're actually trusting in what Jesus has done for you to gain you that right standing with God. Now I've got to be careful with this, and I, I make this point because sometimes we can almost turn faith into sort of this work that we do. And we try to start kind of analyzing our own faith, saying, well, do I have enough faith? Uh, or we think it's some sort of attitude of surrender on our part that makes us right with God. And we try to look and see, well, have I surrendered enough? But the fact is that faith by its very nature doesn't look at itself. You don't look at yourself through faith. You look away from yourself to Jesus Christ. And a good illustration of this is that faith is a lot like a windshield. Okay, the, you, don't, you don't look at the windshield when you're going down the road or you're going to crash. You look through the windshield to something else. And that's what faith is like. We're looking through faith to Jesus and what He's done. We're not looking at the quality or the quantity of our faith or how big it is or how little it is. We're simply looking by faith and trusting Jesus. An old writer put it like this with somebody who was struggling with this idea of what it means to believe in Jesus and have I really believed in Jesus. And he said this, you're puzzling yourself so much about this shows that you're proceeding in a wrong direction. You're still laboring under the idea that this believing is a work to be done by you. i got to believe, i got to believe, i got to believe. And not the simple acknowledgement of a work done by another. You would like to do something in order to get peace, and you think that if you could only do this great thing called faith, God would reward you with peace. In this view, faith is a price as well as a work, when in reality, faith is neither one of these. But faith is a ceasing from work and from attempting to pay for salvation. Faith is not a climbing of the mountain, but a ceasing to attempt it and allowing Christ to carry you up in His arms. Faith is not the climbing of a mountain, but a ceasing from attempting it and allowing Christ to carry you up in His arms. Faith is how you receive this gift of right standing with God. And at the very moment you believe the Gospel, you are credited with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. You get credit for somebody else's work. You get credit for what Jesus has done. And because of that, at that moment you have right standing of God, right standing with God forever. It's not right standing with God today and maybe not next Thursday and maybe not a month from now. It's right standing with God forever. At the moment you look to faith in Jesus Christ, God justifies you. He declares you to be in right standing with, with His court. You're still a sinner, but in the eyes of the judge, because you are clothed, as it were, with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, the judge can call you and declare you righteous. Now this is justification by faith. I mean, it's really... If you don't have this, you don't have a church anymore. 
It's, it's the very thing that the church stands or falls on. Uh, the shorter catechism that we use sometimes defines it this way. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ. Not for something we have done, but only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, credited to us, and received by faith alone. That's the gift that Paul, that God offers to us in the Gospel. And that really changes everything. Now we could go on for days uh, about what all this changes. And I think a lot of the Christian life is, is working out the implications of the Gospel. But let me just give you a few things to, to kind of hang your hat on here as we leave. Some of the things that believing this actually changes in our life. For one, let me give you the obvious. It changes your relationship with God. I mean, you don't have to walk around anymore in fear, worrying that you're somehow under the wrath of God. Romans 5, which we'll get to in a few weeks, says that since you've been saved by faith, you're at peace with God. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation. Not there's a little bit of condemnation. There might be some condemnation if you don't have your quiet time today. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Uh, knowing and believing justification actually fuels your desire for holiness. Right? It's not going to make you want to be less holy because what's happening is, is no longer is you're going to no longer are you going to be slaving for this harsh God that you're worried, oh, I'm going to mess up and, and He's not going to accept me any longer. Uh, the exact opposite is true. You are now gladly serving a God. Uh, who knew that you were screwed up when He sent His Son to die for you. And yet He sent His Son to die for you anyway because He loved you. And that's who you're serving. And knowing that changes everything about how you serve. Uh, Knowing and believing that you're justified by faith is going to begin to lessen your fear of other people. It's going to lessen your fear of man. Uh, if, If God is for me, then your opinion of me doesn't matter so much anymore. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get less and less over time. The gospel has this way of sucking that people-pleasing drive out of us because we know, hey, God loves me. You may not like me very much right now, but, but God loves me and He's accepted me in His Son. Uh, knowing and believing that you're justified by faith helps us to take off these masks that we all put on and to actually believe the truth about ourselves. Somebody once said, cheer up, it's worse than you think. Um, You know, we all got depressed reading the first three chapters of Romans. We just scratched the surface. You're really a lot worse than that. Uh, And I'm I'm really a lot worse than that. And if you think you're a sinner now, wait till you've been a Christian 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years. And you've had time to see what's really in your heart and the things that still haven't changed in your life. You're worse than you think you are, but you're loved more than you think you are as well. Jesus has given His life for you. Jesus has given you right standing with the Father. It's finished. It's complete. You have right standing with the Father. You're loved by God if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. And that means that you and I have got to quit all of this. I don't measure up. I'm not worthy. I'm no good. I, 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 I'm such a failure. 
and these kind of pity parties that we get in sometimes about uh, how good we are at different things and, and all that sort of thing. The truth of the matter is, you know what, you're right. You're, you're probably a lousy dad and a lousy mom and you're not the employee of the month uh, and your thought life is not what it should be and you really don't have it all together. And I don't either. You don't have it all together. But you still have right standing with the Father because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not about you. Christianity, and I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions that we have to fight about, fight against. Christianity is not about you having it all together. Christianity is about Jesus having it all together. And because Jesus had it all together, then it's okay that I don't. It's okay that I don't. Let me, let me give you a, a personal example of this just to kind of give you an example of how believing justification by faith can really change how we approach life. Uh, there have been times when I've been frantically preparing a sermon uh, on any given week that that I have to really fight this desire to, to go catch a plane to the Bahamas and just say, y'all are never going to see me again. And, and I've stopped and I've asked myself, why is this so stressful? Why am I not having any joy in, in preaching God's Word? And you know, one reason it's stressful is because oh, I, you're preaching God's Word. I'm not just reading Dr. Seuss to you. So there's, there's some things inherently stressful in it. And I do add to it some weeks by waiting a little bit too late in the week to get started, as some of you can procrastinators can, can appreciate. But it struck me once when I was actually preaching on justification is that one of the main reasons sermon preparation can be joyless is because I find myself producing a product in hopes that you will like what I've done. That I'll hear the applause of man. And I'm stressed out because I'm not worried about pleasing God. And I'm not even so much worried that you'll understand the Gospel better. But, but I'm scared of not performing. What if it's a bad sermon? What if nobody likes it? What if nobody comes? What if 200 people come and it was terrible and they never come back again? What if somebody asks me a question, some really easy question, and I don't know the answer to it? Uh, those kind of questions indicate to me that at times my real concern is with my performance. It's, it's with feeling good about myself, with other people liking me. And when I think like that, what I'm doing is I'm forgetting justification by faith. I'm forgetting justification by faith. Uh, I'm effectively saying, God, the fact that You've accepted me as righteous in Your Son, the fact that You've given me Jesus' resume doesn't mean that much to me right now. What means a lot to me right now is building my own resume. I want to build my own resume. I want to do that by performing, by doing the works of the law. And so I've, I've walked away from justification by faith in a very practical way. I've walked back to justification by works. If I do enough, then you'll like me and I'll be an acceptable person and then everything is going to be okay. You ever find yourself in that kind of situation? Trying to justify yourself by your performance? Uh, Chariots of Fire, one of the main characters, is explaining why he trained so hard for the 100 meter dash. And this is what he says I have 10 lousy seconds to justify my existence. I have 10 lousy seconds to justify my existence. 
What's your 100 meter dash? What's your 100 meter dash? What are those places in your life that you're trying to establish your righteousness through the works of the law instead of simply relying on Jesus uh, and rejoicing that Jesus is the one who has given you His righteousness so that you now have right standing with the Father and your performance before others doesn't matter so much anymore. See, at, at the very moment you believe the Gospel, you are right with God. And there's no going back on that. It's a one-time thing. We don't need to repeat it. Uh, but, but the truth of the matter is we really do struggle with applying the Gospel to our everyday life. We sort of believe that, okay, I'm a Christian now, and then we leave it behind and forget what it has to do with our everyday lives, and our identity gets all tied up in our performance instead of being tied up in the performance of Jesus on our behalf. And so we've got to keep coming back to justification by faith and looking at it and thinking about it and chewing on it and being changed by it. My, um, my parents, every year when they bring us Christmas presents, they, they always bring a present for the dog. And our previous dog was much smarter than our current dog. I know that's not hard to believe. Uh, went from one extreme to the other. But my mom and dad would bring the present out and she knew which present was hers and she would unwrap that present. We've got video of her pawing away and chew it until she got the wrapping paper off and got to her present. Um, if you're not a Christian, then I'd invite you to quit relying on your righteousness, on your own righteousness and trust instead, of the, trust instead in the gift of Jesus' righteousness. If you are a Christian, then I would invite you to be like my dog uh, and to chew on that gift of justification by faith and gnaw on it and think about it and be changed by it all over again. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You that our acceptability does not lie in our performance. It does not lie in us doing the works of the law, but it lies simply in what uh, He has done. pray that You would cause us um, not just to believe that, but to begin to learn how to apply that to the way we live every day. And Father, I pray that You would help us to make this doctrine known because it really is the Gospel. Uh, help us to point our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones not to religion, uh, but to point them to Jesus and what He has done. We pray it in His name. Amen.